Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited today to be joined by Tipor Ullman, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Science is Elementary. We're going to hear about how Science is Elementary came in, into being and some of the things that Tipor has going on in her world. Before we do any of that, I want to welcome you to the show. Tipor, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks so much, Michael. It's really great to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Awesome. It's fantastic to have you. Shout out to Rich Friedland, who connected us. And if our listeners out there, if you know someone who would make a great guest on Trending in Ed, put them in touch with me, and you'd be surprised how easy it is to get this ball rolling. We always like to get started by hearing our guests' origin stories. What got you to this point in your professional life? Spin us a yarn. Tell us a tale. How did you get to this point in your career? Great. Thank you so much. I actually was born in Israel and grew up in a science household and then came to the United States for high school, college in Cleveland. And when I got to Cleveland, it was the early 90s. I'm dating myself here a little bit. And urban America in the early 90s was not a very great place to live. And it was really my first exposure to seeing the, the differences between folks who had more resources and folks who had fewer resources and also people of color and white people. And in Cleveland, I volunteered in a tutoring mentoring program in the inner city there. And, and that was really, that was just really an amazing experience. Like I said, seeing the kids, seeing how motivated they are seeing how engaged their families were, and at the same time, how few resources the community had. And then I came to Stanford for a PhD in chemistry and finished that and was doing a variety of different things, you know, strategy consulting, nonprofit management, all sorts of really things that seemed like they weren't connected to each other at all. And when my son was about to start kindergarten, we were looking at different schools for him, and I realized that no one was really teaching science well. And in the schools that served a lot of higher-need children, meaning children from lower-income communities, science wasn't really being taught at all. Mm. And I thought, okay, like this will be my next place, right? I will go and work for a nonprofit that does science education in elementary school. But sadly, in 2008, no one in Silicon Valley was really doing that in an impactful way. And so I started Science as Elementary. You know, if you had asked me five years before, are you an entrepreneur? I would say, of course not. <laughs> but I think it's really testament to the fact that for many of us, when we see a problem, we really want to, uh, to figure out a solution. And then there's micro solutions and macro solutions. So that was really the origin of science elementary. And what I was really interested in doing is bringing exciting hands-on science experiences to the children whose families couldn't afford opportunities for them to do that elsewhere. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I hear a lot of talk, learning loss is a trigger word for me, but but the idea of like opportunity gaps and the idea that some kids get exposed to more of those opportunities earlier and more often, and how can we establish programs that can begin to level the playing field. And what I really, again, as parent of a pre-K, four-year-old, soon to be four-year-old, the idea that you're starting early is really interesting to me. It's been revelatory to me to see what is and isn't included in early childhood education. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Because I know that's been an area of, of focus for you. Sure. Let me tell you just a quick note on Science of Elementary, the name of the nonprofit. So yeah. we meant that both as in elementary school, but also elementary as in foundational. Mm -hmm. We really believe that science is foundational for a lot of different things. And we started in elementary school because 
at the time, most elementary school classrooms, like I said, teachers weren't really teaching science, and in particular in the younger years. And yet, young children are so curious, right? Parents get annoyed at their toddlers for asking why. That's that's the fundamental underlying thing of science is questions and asking yeah. questions. And we recently started working with preschool teachers because they told us that there's not a lot of high quality science content for preschool yeah. and also not a lot of professional learning opportunities for preschool teachers. So a lot of preschool teachers know that science is important, that engineering is important, that scientific thinking is important, but they don't have the tool to bring that into their classroom. And so we started two theories of professional learning for preschool teachers. One is about integrating science and literacy. And obviously, right, young children are learning language and they're learning, they might not be learning to read, but they're learning to make sense of the printed word in the printed book. Yeah. And so being able to integrate science and literacy and that curiosity is super important. Mm-hmm. And the second series that we've, that we've created is, a, is titled Science as Play and Play as Science. Mm. And really thinking about, again, how do you harness that creativity and that curiosity that preschoolers have through both directed and non-directed play to teach science and to teach engineering and to teach scientific thinking? And, and so doing that, starting that young is crucial because that carries us through. A lot of us remember our experiences in preschool right. and how much fun we had. And so if we can associate for these young kids, especially these kids from impacted neighborhoods, that science and engineering are really fun, that's going to help carry it through to them. Yeah, absolutely. It, re- it reminds me of, uh, I heard folks talk about developing a learner identity. Like you want to have your young kid feel like I can learn this. Learning is fun. I enjoy going to school. But then beyond that, even the career prospects for folks who do think of them they internalize the STEM capabilities and they realize they can enjoy them. Can you talk more about that? How, you know, in some ways there's a lot of awareness of the need to develop your reading skills by the time you're third grade. What about in the early learner's identity? Is there research into developing some sense of themselves as someone who is good at science? Yeah, absolutely. So there's research from the 90s and from the early 2000s about how important it is to start young. And one of the pieces of the research asked current scientists and their parents at what age they got really excited and interested in science. And the answer was eight to nine. So mm-hmm. by the time kids are eight or nine, they kind of have, a, a, like you said, a sense of themselves and who they are in the world. And then there's a lot of research that shows that interest in science for girls drops off precipitously in middle school. And so the question is, how do you bridge that gap? between elementary school and middle school, because if in first grade, they're super excited, and in sixth grade, they're not excited, what happens in between? Yeah. And I think it's really key to keep engaging kids and to really show them that science is fun, that science is everywhere. That's one of our pillars, science is everywhere, right? And bring different kinds of science. Oftentimes, when we think about science, we think of people in lab coats. So, you know, we have a lot of volunteers who come into the classroom, and when they're new to us, they say, oh, can I wear my lab coat? And I say, no, because... You don't need a lab coat to be science. You might, it might be required by your job, but you can do science when you play sports. If you right. figure out the angle that you need to kick the ball, you can do science when you cook. You can do science when you garden. You can mm-hmm. do science when you're knitting and you're counting stitches and doing all sorts of different things with patterns, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's really important to engage kids with whatever it is that they're interested in and show them how science and, and engineering are actually part of that. Yeah, makes sense. You know, the other 
area that I've been really interested in is the KiwiCo like home learning kit space. We started that Love Every starts it at zero. So we did it like zero to three. We were getting little kits that, you know, when, when he was three months old, he could barely move, but we still had a little learning kit for him (laughs) because it was interesting, but it is surprising to me how that idea of like playfulness, a a maker's mindset, the idea that I'm going to tinker with this stuff and encourage your creativity. It's all baked into these supplemental programs, but frequently it's not. At some point, it's less baked into the more formal education that kids get in school. There's so many demands on our teachers nowadays. How do we both protect them and give them enough guidance and instruction on how to foster that love of science and love of learning about it and getting your hands dirty. Can you talk more about about that connection? Absolutely. So I think teachers are amazing and really undervalued. And we we need to give teachers a lot more time. I don't know if you know this, but in the OECD, most most elementary school teachers actually have planning time built into their school day. And in the United States, in most school districts, we don't have that, right? So we expect elementary school teachers to be experts at reading and writing and math and science and art and social emotional learning, all this other stuff, but we don't give them time during the school day to actually plan for that. And so I think what we need to do, first of all, is we need to, I really think we need to shift how we think about education. A lot of times in elementary school, the learning is very siloed. Right. So you have some number of minutes per day for ELA or EOD for English language acquisition or English language development. Right. And then some number of minutes for math and some number of minutes for this and that, where we know that when you have to solve a problem in the real world, it doesn't neatly segment itself for you into, oh, do the math equation and then read and then write. Right. But rather, you need to bring all those skills together. And so I think in education, we really need to move towards a lot more integration. You know, it might look more like project-based learning, but it might not be quite that involved. It's not that everything needs to be project-based, but really we need to integrate so that we can recognize that when we're reading, we can read about science or we can write about science Mm -hmm. or we can do math while we're doing experiments. And a lot of the skills that we need, right? Like our kids are going to have all the information in the world. They already do in their hand and their phone. Right. Yeah. So the yeah. question is, what are the skills that we need to equip them with? So going back to your question about teachers, and so number one, we need to give teachers tons. We also need to allow them to integrate more and give them the freedom to do that, so that there's not so many restrictions on them. And then the third thing is, we need to do professional development that is long term. One of the things we know about professional development is that when it's effective, that is, when it helps improve classroom practices. It's something that has to happen over at least, I think, 80 hours, Mm. right? And also, you need a professional learning community. And oftentimes, the way that schools are structured, through no fault of teachers or principals, right? It's just the way that we've gotten to at this point with what you're saying, with all the constraints that are placed on them, teachers don't have time to do a really long-term professional development session. And so the question is, how do we as a society understand that teachers are really valuable. They're educating the next generation. And then how do we enable our school systems, public school systems, to give teachers and other educators, principals, the time to both become better at what they do and also give them more flexibility and trust them that they know 
the best way to educate. Yeah, absolutely. I've been talking more about the whole teacher, just like the whole student. Understand that there are many dimensions to what we're all juggling these days and how do we, you know, be just as empathic and leading with grace when we're thinking about teachers as we're now thinking about how we need to be that way when we're teaching students. And, and if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like this, this organization has been around for a little bit of time now, and you had some momentum and maturity pre-pandemic. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit and we all were forced to move in all sorts of new directions. I'm sure that was true for you. We like to kind of get inside the head of someone who's leading an education company and who's struggling with some of these things, some of the pivots and changes that you have sure. to make. Any perspective from your neck of the woods in terms of what the last few years have been like? Yeah. So at Thurston Elementary, we work primarily with students in Title I schools. So those are schools that serve a high percent of children who come from low-income families. And even in California, at the beginning of the pandemic, 20%, that's a fifth of our children in K-12, were not connected to the internet, mm. right? So the fifth largest economy in the world, if California were its own country, right. 20%, that, that is just an unbelievable number. And in the low-income communities, that number was even higher. So a third of our students were not connected to the internet. And so if you're not connected to the internet, you can't go to school during the pandemic. Right. We're not set up to solve the internet connectivity issue, but we are set up to help with science. And so the pandemic hit, as we all know, in March of 2020. In May of 2020, we saw that we were not going back to school in person for a very long time. And so in two months, I wrote 15 science books that were targeted at five to seven-year-olds. So they're pre-readers and emerging readers. And the start of these books have zero language in them because we didn't want language to be a barrier. Wow. We want everybody to be able to do science. We believe that science is for everyone. And these books are really unique because they're a combination of social stories that feature children of color protagonists so that children of color see themselves in the story. There's a lot of research and the importance and belonging. And, yeah. and coupled with that, we have illustrated step-by-step instructions for kids to do the experiment. So really, even if you can't read, you can do science. And we packed these all up with all the materials that children would need to do the experiment so that we didn't send parents during the pandemic to random stores to buy two popsicle sticks. We really want kids to be able to do this on their own. And we found that 96% of the kids we distributed the books to loved them. And about 85% of them could do either all or most of the activities entirely on their own. Mm -hmm. At the same time, because the books were going home, we also know from research that parents tell us that they struggle to find high quality science content to engage with their children. And, and so what we did is we created adult companions for each one of these books that have questions that parents can ask. They have answers if the questions are closed-ended. There are suggestions for further activities. There is a description of a scientific practice, such as asking questions, why it's important, how to foster that in children. And so in the first 10 months, we distributed 10,000 of these to low-income children in the Bay Area, primarily by going to meal pickup sites and just handing them out for free. Mm -hmm. And that project was so successful, and we have so much demand now that this year we're going to be distributing 50,000 of these to 40,000 children. And not only is there demand locally, we're expanding not just in numbers, but also our service area. We're going from Sacramento all the way down to the Central Valley, west to Salinas. 
We're starting in Michigan and in North Carolina, and we're also going to be international in the winter of 2023 to, to two different countries, right? So there's so much demand for high quality science content for some of our younger learners, these five to seven year old, especially when it's sort of this unique combination of their word with stories. You have the sense of belonging, you have the parent, the family engagement piece. And so that's something that we're really excited about is really the opportunity to bring this to even more children and families. It's so interesting whether you hit by the pandemic and like our in-person program completely disappeared. All of our contracts and professional development for science completely disappeared, right? Because schools were not and districts were not, you know, their priority was feeding their children yeah. and making sure they were connected. So we were like, okay, our budget's tanked. Now what do we do? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just so interesting that from this sort of really low point, we've emerged to be an organization that is so much larger and more impactful than we were before. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking if you could somehow turn that into an animated cartoon series, you would have my four-year-old's attention. So I would be surprised if, if that does eventually come down the pike as well. And then the future of work is the other area that we wind up talking a lot about on this show in terms of the way jobs are changing, the way automation is coming to bear. Do you have any thoughts about the role science and science education plays there? It's probably... Some of this stuff might be foundational to your mission, but it's probably worth spending a few moments on like why why is science important and you know how does that potentially connect to the way our professional lives are, are changing, especially if you think about children nowadays where you know when they're looking for a sure. job in 15, 20 years, who knows what they'll be doing? Right. So I think there's a few things there. The first question is, why is science important? And I think science is important because it's everywhere. Science is in our, is like we talked about in sports and cooking and our economy, science is everywhere. And also the biggest problem that we face in the world right now, like climate change, drought, things like that, are problems that we need scientists and engineers to, to help us solve. Yeah. And then finally, I really think that scientific thinking is foundational to a functioning democracy. Mm-hmm. And so if we all agree on facts and know that some facts are indisputable. And we understand that there are some questions that can be answered by science and evidence that we can argue from that evidence. I think that our democracy will function much better. No one has a crystal ball to predict the future. And so I think because also we talked about how children have all the information in the palm of their hand, right? What's really important is to teach children skills and to teach them skills that, that allow them to use that information, to analyze that information, to ask questions and to know what to do with the answers that they get, right? So that's, again, where science comes in. It really gives us a structure to, to think about from the very beginning, from making observations to figuring out how to ask good questions, to figure out what experiment do you set up, what data do you collect, what data do you analyze, which of the data that you analyze is actually evidence, how does it help you answer your question, and then the, going doing the circular path, right? Science isn't linear. I think that is really important because like you said, we have no idea what jobs are going to do like in right. 15 or 20 years. So I really think like equipping kids with those skills and then also curiosity is so important. If you are curious, you're going to be a lifelong learner. And that's what we need. We need our children to be lifelong learners. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned the polarization that's out there and some of the challenges. There's even surprising backlashes against things like science. Any advice or thoughts for folks if you're trying to defend or advocate for why it's important to build these 
critical thinking elements and some of the perhaps is where some of the social emotional stuff kicks in too, where, you know, you're going to have to be able to work with difference and, you know, engage in conversations that might be surprising to you. Like when you have to defend why science is important, any perspective on that? I'm sure this is something you're grappling with in these challenging times. Yeah, I think a lot of people will agree that science is important. I think what people might disagree is with what we do with the science that we have and what we find, right? So I think that's part of it. You know, education is paramount. And so if we educate children to understand why science is important and talk about how science is everywhere and talk about how humanity has advanced because of science. Right. Humanity has advanced because people ask questions, because people try new things. We used to think that that the sun revolved around the earth. We used to think that the earth is flat. Right. All of these things are things that we learned. Like science is important because it prolongs our life. There are new medications thanks to science. There are there are so many. If you play sports, the reason you have better helmets now in football is because engineers figured out that, the old, that you know, they caused concussions. So there's so many ways if we connect science and engineering to people's daily lives and what they care about, yeah. they're going to, it's going to be easier for them to see how important science is and to understand that it is part of their everyday life. And then when there are things that, again, for reasons that are beyond me are controversial, like vaccines. Yeah. But if people understand how science impacts their daily lives, the things that are non-controversial, mm-hmm. they might be more willing to see how science is important and that it is real for things that are perhaps more controversial. Yeah. Yeah. And then your point about being inclusive around who can identify as being good at science, I think is frequently where that disconnect happens too, where people feel disincluded or discluded. I forget which is the right word, but people don't feel like science curriculum is for them. It's for the smart kids. You know, it does tie a lot to both growth mindset and grit, both, Mm -hmm. and perhaps the imposter syndrome. Those breakthroughs on the mindset side and on the ways to encourage and develop good learning mindsets in students and also I imagine in teachers. Can you talk a bit about how growth mindset and grit and some of those other components relate to developing a love of science? Absolutely. So we talk with our students a lot about perseverance, right? And science is a great way to fail <laughs> and succeed again, mm-hmm. right? And we also talk with our students a lot about why failure is important and how sometimes actually when you fail, you might discover something like penicillin. Yeah. Uh, and we talk about how Edison, you know, there's a disagreement about how many times he actually tried it, but we say a thousand because it's a nice round number. But Edison famously said something along the lines of, you know, I, I didn't fail. I found 999 ways that didn't work. And so the idea of trying something and it doesn't work and you try again and you try again until you succeed, finds is like a perfect way to experiment. And if it doesn't work, especially in elementary school, nothing bad happens, right? The failure is not that bad, right? Okay, so you mix these things and it didn't bubble as much as your neighbors did. Okay, what's the big deal, right? So really helping children understand, oh, I can fail as this and it's an opportunity for me to learn. And also bringing children examples of scientists who have failed multiple times yeah. and have used those things as learning opportunities, especially if, if you're talking about, you know, communities that are underrepresented in science and in STEM. And 
and talking about scientists of color, right? And who might not be American, who might be from other parts of the world. And we have two NASA astronauts, a former astronaut and, and a current one, who are Latino, right? And one of them actually was a child of migrant farm workers, right? So imagine how many failures. He actually, I think, applied to the NASA program six times mm. before he was accepted. And mm-hmm. every time he's, he's failed at getting accepted, he decided to pick up a new skill. And so giving these examples to children of, oh, here's someone who's like you. Right. And they failed, but they didn't let it stop them. When you do science and engineering and it doesn't work, you just try again. I think allowing children to do that really helps them and saying, oh, failure is not so bad. I can try again. I can persevere. I can be a scientist. Yeah. It kind of runs counter to the idea of the scientific genius. Everything just comes to them. And either you are that kid or you're not a scientist. You know, we almost need to debunk that myth to reinforce that those who got really great at this got there by suffering through some failure. It reminds me of uh, Mm -hmm. a quote, Nelson Mandela, you know, I never, I never lose. I either win or learn, you know, it's a, a, but the mindset stuff does feel like an awakening that's running parallel to the need for science. And somehow if you can connect those two bodies of thought, some of the stuff around um, behavioral economics and the built-in biases that we as humans have, the idea that science can help us uncover our own faults and things that we need to work around is really eye-opening. We're getting closer to time, Tipor, so I want to make sure we give you a chance to conclude at the end. But before we do that, I'd love to hear from you if there's anything out there in the world that is new and exciting that's capturing your attention that you think our listeners should be paying attention to. You could say whatever you want. It could be within science, but if it's something new or surprising, I'd love to hear anything you might have to share. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if it's that new to people who are aware of science, but I love the pictures that are coming out of the web telescope. Mm. And appropriately, there was a smiling sun that kind of looks like a jack-o'-lantern that was released a couple of days ago. So if you haven't had a chance and we're recording this on Halloween, so go check it out. And one of the things that a lot of people might not be aware of is that in addition to taking these really cool photos, there's actually a treasure trove of data that's going to be coming. And I'd love to see what scientists and astronomers and astrophysicists discover once they analyze all this data that's, that's coming in. I, to me, that's something that's super exciting that's happening right now. That's amazing. It's not just good desktop wallpaper. There is also going to be right. <laughs> new scientific breakthroughs coming from this stuff, which is amazing. This is awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. I think you're an inspiration to me and also for, hopefully for our listeners out there. If you have any advice or recommendations for folks, you know, words of courage, feel free to impart them. And then we are going to want to uh, conclude. But before we get to the conclusion, if folks want to learn more about what we were talking about, where should they go? What should they do? They can go to our website, which is just scienceiselementary.org. Awesome. And we'll include links to that on the website. As we're bringing this home, Zipor, folks want some takeaways, some words of encouragement or wisdom as they head back to their lives. What are some concluding thoughts or takeaways you might want to share? So I think that we often get bogged down in the things that aren't working and the things that are depressing in the world. Mm. And at the same time, I think there's so much out there that it's truly inspirational. And if you look, for instance, at my children and their generation, they are so aware of what's going on. They are really working in a lot of different ways to make the world a better place. And scientists are making advances all the time to help us lead better, healthier lives. And I think that we should all be inspired by that. 
and encouraged by the progress that's being made. That's awesome. And think about how we all have young scientists. If we are parents, we have young scientists in our lives, even if we're not parents. Young people will need to be equipped with scientific skills, probably as more foundational, which is why I also do like you're connecting it to just basic reading and literacy skills. Basic science literacy is really going to be foundational to a lot of what the future has in store for us. Amazing stuff. Folks should check out Sciences Elementary. We'll include links to that and some of the things that Sipor was talking about in the show notes for this episode. Sipor Ullman, the CEO and founder of Sciences Elementary, thanks so much for joining us on today's show. Thanks so much, Michael. It was a pleasure. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, write a good review, and tell the world. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 